Hi, I'm George Bonarchy, and this is Cityscape. Our guest today is author and New Yorker cartoonist Ken Krimstein. He joins us to talk about his new graphic narrative called When I Grow Up. It brings to life the accounts of six Eastern European Jewish youths right before the start of World War II. It was long thought the Nazis destroyed the autobiographies, but they were discovered in 2017, hidden away in a Lithuanian church cellar. Ken, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. It's a pleasure, George. Nice to do it. Yeah. So when and how did you first learn about these stories? Well, it was completely uh, by accident, as most things in my life tend to be. It was a freezing day in Chicago. Surprise, surprise. And uh, I needed a bagel. Uh, I needed a New York bagel. No, I needed a New York Bialy in specific. And there's a store around here that has it. So I went there. And they had a free newspaper and it said talk to be given this afternoon on recently discovered archives coffee will be served so i managed to go there and someone from yivo which is this um, organization in new york and um, has a lot of history was speaking about how these hundreds of thousands of pages of documents from before world war ii written uh, and compiled by this yiddish cultural scientific institute in, Vil- in what is now Vilnius were recently discovered. In fact, the New York Times had, had written about it, but I, I didn't see the article. So I was sitting in this talk, drinking my coffee, and I ran up to the guy afterward, uh, the head of Evo, and I said, is anybody doing anything with these stories? And he's kind of an academic, what do you mean doing? You know, I mean, like a book, a movie, anything. And he said, well, no, no I now go to Vilnius. And uh, the next thing I know, uh, I was researching, I had discovered this incredible competition uh, that they had run to find out what made this civilization that I've called Yiddishuania um, tick. And um, this Yiddishuania was before World War II, basically extending from um, you know, Latvia to uh, Crimea and Moscow to Warsaw, uh, almost 11 million Yiddish uh, speaking people. And uh, there were many, many uh, cunning and smart things that these scholars did. Um, They uh, offered a prize. Um, They talked to teenagers, which was really unusual in those days because um, interestingly, George, the word teenager had not even been invented yet. I think uh, they invented that on Madison Avenue in the 50s. They called these youth, the youth. And so they offered the whopping prize of 150 Zlatis, because this was mostly in Poland, for the most honest um, autobiography. And in order to further encourage that, and this was just one of the many ironies, they um, said, don't put your name on it make it anonymous, we'll, but we'll do a coding thing so you can get the money. But they were wise enough to realize that if you ask you know, 18-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds to spill the beans uh, and they put their name on it, their parents might read it and that it wouldn't work. So it just, it was one irony onto another. And um, the one that really capped it off for me was, so they got about 700 of these in before World War II and the prize was to be awarded to the most honest uh, little autobiography, 15-page autobiography, on September 1st, 1939. and that The same day, day the Nazis invaded Poland. The same day the Nazis invaded Poland. I mean, that was a date that I had 
you know, learned in history class. And uh, obviously they never awarded the prize. Uh, they had other things to do, as I say in the book, like survival. Um, and then these things were lost and found and lost and found and lost and found. And finally, you know, in this New York Times, this last trove of them, they were cleaning out. I mean, these stories are incredible. They were cleaning out like a church uh, that wasn't a church anymore. It would, the Soviets had turned it into like a book repository. And lo and behold, stuffed into the old organ pipes and buried under piles of Pravda magazines, they found these these documents. And wow. I was like, I got to get there. I got to find out about this. Now, something called the Paper Brigade was responsible for helping to make sure these documents still exist today, right? Very much so. And this Paper Brigade, I owe a lot, a, a real, um, uh, you know, vote of thanks to uh, Professor David Fishman, um, who's in New York at the Jewish Theological Seminary. I think he's the head of history and he knows Yiddish. He wrote a book about it. But basically, um, you know, the horror and the irony and, of this. So the Nazis, uh, one of the first things that they did when they uh, conquered uh, Vilna, Vilnius, was they went directly to YIVO and they said, we want to get all these Jewish artifacts. And in a, just a humongous act of historical cynicism, they're like, we want them all shipped to this great museum we're building in Frankfurt. Uh, to do to document the irrelevant and destroyed civilizations who are they going to get to filter through all this the very scholars who put them together at the end of a gun and these people some 40 of them at the beginning of the war came to be known as the paper brigade and at, at risk of their life they would do like one for you and you know two for us and they hid these things away and if they were caught they they were they were subject to you know being killed put horrible stuff so a lot of many a lot of the materials went to Frankfurt and the monuments men another thing you know they kind of discovered them and by hook and by crook they made Yivo relocated to New York City they're uh, they're still there um, but a lot of stuff was hidden a lot of stuff was hidden and uh, the paper brigade scholars, writers, people wearing glasses, you know, uh, toting guns, hiding, wrapping these things, stuffing them under their clothes, burying them. And that's what, you know, so the, the minute that the Soviets recaptured uh, Vilna, I mean, the history of, of Lithuania is like, it's a hot potato between Russia and Poland and Germany. But anyway, the Soviets recaptured Vilna and the paper brigade said, oh, we can save this stuff. So then it, they, they pulled it all out and they made a little museum. And, uh, you know, luckily uh, this, the, the Russians and the Americans and the whatever beat Hitler and all this, thank God. And uh, they made this museum. And then come 1948, uh, is, the state of Israel is declared. It decides to go to the West and not to the East. So Stalin says all that stuff that they found, pulpit, get rid of it. Another hero steps up at this point. This is a, a non-Jewish um, guy, uh, a Lithuanian uh, librarian uh, named uh, Antanas Opus, and he goes around to everybody in Vilnius and says, don't throw that stuff away. I'm in charge of the book repository, the book palace, whatever you call it, and I love books. And I love, I didn't fight the Nazis to do this. We don't burn books. We don't throw books away. So he risked his life 
And this is the guy who was responsible for hiding these things in that church. And then he, he died and his kid, his son was still around. And eventually with the fall of the iron curtain and, and things like that, this archive emerged. So a lot of people put a lot, a lot at risk to save these. And then I found out about them and they were heartbreaking and amazing at the same time, because, you know, I had done a, a, a graphic novel. I mean, this is, I should probably mention that this is a, this is not just a written, uh, I'm a cartoonist. Uh, I do cartoons for the New Yorker and I had done a, another graphic novel history because I love history. So these are pictures and words. And I, you know, I don't, read Yiddish very well. I had to find a translator. I mean, I barely read it at all, but I found a translator. I went to Vil Vilnius. They were amazing. I mean, they put them in a beautiful archive and I had to find them. And these were boys, girls, rich, poor, religious, sacrilegious, but they were teenagers. And that's what really, really got me. And they didn't know uh, what was coming. No one could have. And, you know, George, one thing that really got me, I was living in New York City. I lived there for a really long time before I moved here. And uh, I was there on 9-11. And I was there on 9-10. And, and this, is what, this is what it made me think of. It was on 9-10, we didn't know what was going to happen. Mm. We didn't even really know. I'm sure you remember. We didn't even really know what was going to happen, you know, at 7 in the morning on 9-11. Yeah. So this was the 9-10 in the minds of these young individuals for you. Yeah, it's how I had to do it. They didn't, I mean, there were obviously, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't Disneyland, no place is. Um, storm clouds, you know, were gathering. But on the other hand, it was a vibrant, modern civilization. Uh, they were watching Betty Davis movies. They had radio. They were dancing. They were in cities. They, their parents didn't understand them. They were getting divorced. I mean, it was just, you know, it wasn't that long ago, really. So what went through your mind? How did you feel when you actually had these stories in your hand for the first time? So there were two parts. Um, when I went there to Vilnius and they handed me these, they were like little, first of all, paper preserves really well. It's amazing. It's a great medium, particularly for historians. I wonder what they're going to think in 500 years when the internet goes down. But right now, uh, paper's great. So I was holding these little notebooks and, you know, people, even though it's Yiddish, whatever writing, they're writing with fountain pens and it's neat and it's on paper and da, da, da. But the, but the, the metal, the, the staples, the, the paper clips are rusted. It's amazing. And uh, one of the archivists there handed me a notebook, just a little notebook. It looks like one of those blue books, you know, you take tests in college. And it's all written, and I and I turned to her and I said, "How many people have 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 flipped through this thing since 1939?" And she says, "Oh, two, you and me." Hmm. I mean, I had a lump in my throat, and so we had a pile of, you know, I, uh, she had been doing some work. So I had about 10, 12 of them that were certain things, like they were complete, uh, they were legible, and then just the second part of it that was really kind of amazing was when I had selected. Um, you know, some of them, and I found uh, Ellen Cassidy, uh, a translator here, uh, and then I would be sitting in my office and an email would come in, you know, uh, the boy who liked a girl, you know, I had to name them because they didn't even have names. They were very, very 
you know, please be anonymous. You can't even mention the town. You can't even mention everybody had to go by like, um, you know, just use initials and so on and so forth. But when I get these stories in and I'd read them, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't believe what I was reading. I couldn't, this was so honest and it took me right, right there. Yeah. It's amazing. The book begins with who you describe as the eighth daughter. What was her story? Yeah. The eighth daughter. Well, you know, as I'm looking through these autobiographies, this girl, this young, I think it was a 19 year old, she starts her autobiography. I was the eighth daughter. So I'm like, well, that's like the Brady Bunch gone wacky. You know, I, I mean, you know, so I thought it was going to be comic, you know, I could imagine. And there are elements of this and that she writes that are sort of comic. But as I read it and reread it and reread it, she, um, talks about her life and her you know her father works as a butcher and they're very kind of prominent in town and uh the girls are all fighting and then her father dies and she's very very sad it's terrible her father you know worked very hard and he'd come home and he'd have angina you know it seemed like everybody had angina you know oh you know it had to take some bromo salts or something you know but anyways um he he passes and and she's very sad and then you know, she wants to uh, say the prayers for her. And everyone in town goes to the thing. And in this kind of uh, very religious community that she happened to be in, or more observant than uh, in those days, and there are still parts of, of Jewish, you know, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It just was a thing that she was in. Women aren't allowed to stand. They have to go in the balcony and they can't pray. And this girl st stands in defiance and the boss of the, the synagogue runs up from the downstairs and yells at her on the balcony you can't do this you can't do this she writes this these are her words in her in her thing so i'm illustrating i'm thinking of them in my mind because it, it's visual you can't do this you can't do this and she goes why and he goes because you're a woman don't you know you know your prayers aren't worth anything and then her exact words and and this was it was at that moment I first began not to understand God. So I'm not making this up. I'm thinking this is like a proto-feminist or a, I don't even know. This is what she felt. This is what she felt. So, uh, you know, the story went in a very different, or the biography, if you will, went in a very different direction. But I related to it because that's what teenagers do in the 1930s. And there was a big generation gap there. So, yeah, that's the story of the eighth daughter. She she says, even these so many years later, I still, I still think about it. The letter writer tells the story of a boy who relentlessly writes letters trying to emigrate to Palestine and to the U.S. after Jews were no longer allowed to attend school. What strikes you most about that story? So what strikes me about the letter writer is his, his character. Uh, he, was a, he, was, he was a fighter. He was a political guy. And, you know, again, as you're doing a a biography you want to stay true to the character but you also need to relate to it in some way like do i know anybody like this do i you know what is what is a person like this like and two things struck well many things struck me but one was i remember the saul bellow a uh, book called um herzog where the character writes letters to everyone in the world so i thought wow this is a real this is really weird and then the audacity of this kid from nowheresville to write to President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Not only does he write to 
President Roosevelt, but he, 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 he says, you know, I wrote, um, first of all, to congratulate him on his reelection for the third time, and secondly, to tell him of my plight. And, you know, you think, wow, okay, but he hears back. He hears back. And then he gets into the quagmire of trying to get out in the US government papers. But he, so he keeps trying. He just keep, he had this in, indomitable spirit. And, you know, of course, you know, I, I can't track him as he's anonymous. I don't even know, you know, but I hope and pray that he somehow survived because he had, he was a fighter. He was a tough, so that was his character. And it really, it struck me. The book also tells the story of a 19-year-old music lover who you call the folk singer. Such emotion in this story, her longing for her dad who abandoned her. Yeah. You know, and I re- again, every one of them, I guess when you're, when you're a writer or an author uh, and you're doing this sort of stuff, you, you have to find part, as I said, aspects of yourself. So I'm a kind of a musician. I love music. And I knew sensitive people and I've read a lot of interviews with with people and I and I had a caller the folk singer because uh, she's very honest this was one of the shorter ones thank goodness but it really packed a lot in and it, it felt very contemporary her father abandons the family in a very kind of inappropriate way uh, that the girl managed to write and I managed to convey using sort of nice language but it was a harsh thing has to get you know, takes up with a non-Jewish woman, uh, tries to get rid of the family, leaves the entire family. This this is the youngest uh, daughter again with brothers and sisters, and and they and leaves them all in abject poverty. And the girl, but early on, she talks about her incredible love for for music. Now she played the mandolin, which I discovered in my research was a very very popular thing for people to do in those days. It it's tuned like a violin and it's fairly inexpensive and they could have bands and orchestras and stuff and whatnot. And I also learned when I went to Vilnius and I stayed there that there was a great music institute there and Yasha Heifetz studied them. But anyway, she fell into music and it was her, and she writes in the thing, I would come home from school and I would make up songs and I would sing for hours and hours and hours. And I can relate to that. You know, I was thinking about people like maybe, you know, I don't know, Joni Mitchell when they were young, you know, whoever, you know, um, Judy Sill, uh, people, whoever, you, you know, you want to think. And she just pours into this and her and the family divides. This is all in her story. I mean, I can't make this up. The family is divided against each other. And the mother at the end kind of confronts her and says, half of you guys are going with your dad and half of your guys are going with me. Where are you? Where are you? And she says at the end, and it's kind of a surprise, but you know, I missed my dad. And I related to that because I know people who've gone through, you know, families where they're divorced and families where, you know, maybe abusive parents or whatever, you know, maybe they, they, they came out or this or that, but they still love their parents. And I thought, wow, there is a truth in there. And this is a girl, this is, this is the life. So I never mentioned what happens to them afterward. I wanted people to understand that because I brought to it my understanding of the history, which, you know, to be somewhat glib, it, you know, it's kind of fiddler on the roof on one side, you know, the play and the horrible images on the other side. And what happened in the middle? What happened in the middle is these were people. They were teenagers. 
they weren't saints. And, and by, you know, a lot of people have covered, you know, the Holocaust and done amazing work and, and some not so amazing. I couldn't do that. That wasn't my, my thing. But this was a way for me to make this, make us understand that everybody, all teens, anybody who's a teen, any religion, any culture, any, you know, we're all just trying to have fun and deal with our parents. And, you know, I thought these were the monsters that, that Hitler wanted to kill. I mean, people who just were like having, dealing with like their father having an affair and stuff. I mean, come on. Yeah, you don't reproduce these autobiographies verbatim. How challenging was it for you to distill these stories for this book? Very challenging. I mean, I think, um, you know, as opposed to doing one biography like I did with Hannah Arendt, which was challenging in its own way, because to look at the truth of somebody's life and try and set it into a, a narrative arc is difficult. I had to do a bunch of them. And then I had to do it in a very compressed form. But luckily, I wasted much of my youth reading comic books so I have some sort of grasp and I worked in advertising for a long time. So I know how to take uh, fairly complicated stories and using visuals, you know, hopefully make them come alive. But I had to find out based on what their words were and their stories, what was the um, essential driving force of that character. So as we talked about, one was maybe a proto-feminist, one was an artistic wounded person one was a fighter and once i kind of figured out what that arc based on their own words was then i had to you know um make sure that it uh it delivered a truth in their words and and their words are the defining tent poles if you will and although i sometimes try to put some connective tissue in there to speed it along I can't, I can't describe what it's like to be, uh, you know, a, a girl, you know, a teen girl in Warsaw who was, a, you know, an au pair and is longing for a pair of ice skates because she uh, wants to be in the in the uh, political group where we're, that wear the cute uniforms versus the ones that wear the schlubby uniform. I can't, I, I had to think so. It's very challenging, but it was really kind of amazing. I did a lot of research. I looked at. Luckily, I went there. There's a lot of archival material. And that, you know, a neat thing about this is that, like, if I find out what a telephone looks like from 1937 in Poland, it, it's awesome. It's like, wow. Did you spend a lot of time walking the streets, sort of trying to put your mind where their minds were at that time? I would say when I was there, um, almost every minute that I walked on the streets, I was trying to do that. Yeah. And that's why I go to these places because, yeah, it's one thing to kind of see pictures and whatnot, but to actually walk the streets of what the, was the ghetto and see how the light slants and see how it relates to the river and see how it relates to uh, the main street in town and where was the cathedral and where were this and that. Um, yeah, and it's a much smaller, tighter space. And then, of course, you're confronted with how it's evolved. So, you know, the area that was the Jewish ghetto of, of Vilnius, which is pretty well preserved, is, is you know, I hate to say, but it's very cute. I mean, it's little winding streets and it's beautiful. So obviously, there are like all sorts of like restaurants and there's an, a couple of awesome record stores and stuff. 
but even if I went down to something subterranean, wow, who hid here? Look at those bricks. What was here? And I, I had some guy, a guide that showed me around. So it's inescapable. And then you discover things. There's still traces of Yiddish writing and Polish writing on, on walls. There's still, you know, uh, when I'm sneaking around places like that, if a door's open and it looks cool, you know, I'll, I'll ask for forgiveness. I go in, you know, so. Your book does help to convey the richness of Yiddish language pre-Holocaust. What was your approach for doing that and making sure that was included in this book? Well, I, it was kind of amazing. You know, I, I mean, my great, my grandparents were first generation. They spoke um, some Yiddish uh, am amongst us. I'm sure when they were growing up, they spoke a lot of Yiddish. So I kind of connected to it in, in, in a visceral way, but I really immersed myself in reading a, a lot of books and articles and talking to people at YIVO and talking to other scholars. And um, the world just opened up to me. I mean, uh, there was some incredible writing um, going way, way back in newspapers and uh, the forward, which, you know, which is still extant in New York, you had a big building down, down in lower Manhattan, um, also had an office in Warsaw. It was like the, it was like the first international news service. I mean, they would telegraph stories from New York to Warsaw and back and forth. It was amazing. So I just, I did a lot of reading on it and I, and I looked at movies and I, I mean, it was amazing for me to just look at newspapers from those days and see like, even if they're in Yiddish and whatnot, and from, from Poland, you know, they're selling uh, Borsalino hats. And, you know, the things that really got me were the similarities that I didn't know about. My parents were, were children and, and luckily uh, in Chicago, but uh, they were very young in the thirties, but uh, I looked at some stuff even connecting and I'm sure you could find it in the Grand Concourse or wherever, uh, if you looked at pictures of some of those schools and some of those things, you wouldn't know what country you were in. So there was a, a, a vibrancy to that culture that I was, I fell in love with, you know, quite frankly. And I think there's an element of it that has extended into America. I mean, there are a lot of people that have written about it. I mean, you could say a lot of Broadway, you know, that, that Yiddish diaspora and that sort of um, what they call Yiddish a cup, the, the, the thinking, you know, uh, if you look at some of the stuff that happened on, you know, Second Avenue in the, in the Yiddish theater, it, it, there was a lot of connections into the way we think in America. So I found myself, uh, actually, I thought it was going to be a lot weirder than it turned out to be. It was more familiar. One of the kids you feature in this book was too young to enter the contest, only 11 years old. You call this individual the rule breaker. Yes. Well, um, okay. You know, a little spoiler alert here for the radio, but I uh, imagine you guys can uh, look it up. So one person survived for sure that we know of, of the six that I did. And lo and behold, it was, you know, the rule breaker. And this was another in just incredible connection of stories. If you were able to talk with just one of the young people featured in this book, who would you say you have the most questions for? If I could speak to just one, maybe it would have been, maybe it would have been the letter writer. Um, first of all, I would have, 
you know, what gave you the resilience to keep fighting against all odds, to keep hoping? And what did you think? How do you think things should, should be? How could they be? Uh, you know, the other thing is, it's hard to say because some of them had such stories that were so much more expansive than I put in. So I have a little bit of privileged knowledge. Like for instance, the last, um, the last girl who, who was this, I call the skater because she, all she wants to do is ice skate. Um, she went through very various political groups from sort of socialist Bundist groups to um, more nationalist groups. And I would have liked, and she's a very bright, and I like, what, what did you see? What, what do you see? How could the, how would the, how should the future have, have unfolded in your estimation? But they were cut off. We don't know. And in a way that's kind of, you know, uh, I think, I'm not sure if this is quite right, but I think in Yiddish, there's a frame in Dridden and right in the middle, they were cut off right in the middle as they were just, and as I say, you know, no one could imagine what happened and we hope and pray. There were many courageous people that were able to survive. Well, Ken, these are incredible stories, wonderfully put together in this book, When I Grow Up, The Lost Autobiographies of Six Yiddish Teenagers. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Learn more about Ken Crimstein and his work at kencrimstein.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.